Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hey friend, you look amazing today. I hope you're having an amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button and join us as we change the world by fixing our workplaces. I am here today with Kirsten Taylor Billups. She's the uh, systems of, uh, what is it again? Systems Director. Systems of Director Senior of Services. Senior Services for Services. Common Spirit Health. I'm sorry, I can't even read my own writing sometimes. Um, <laughs> super excited to get you on. I love healthcare. Uh, our organization helps a lot of uh, healthcare organizations. It's such an important part of our economy. Um, and every time I have one of these uh, podcasts with a healthcare professional, there's always so much that I learn. So super excited to get you on. How's your day going so far? Oh, it's going well. So I think a lot of people don't know what this, uh, what it is you do. Some of some, some people can't even read their own writing about what it is you do. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about what a day or a month in the life of uh, Kirsten looks like. Okay. Uh, well, senior services at Common Spirit uh, Health involves the post-acute arena with regards to, I do compliance reviews for nursing homes, assisted livings, um, memory care, units of the health institution I work for. Um, primarily some of the same issues that other venues deal with as far as, you know, proper payment, accurate documentation, all of that comes into play in my role as a compliance officer for Common Spirit. So that's a lot. That's a lot of things that, that you have to cover. So you're kind of a, like a SWAT team that goes into these different facilities and kind of checks out how, they're, how compliant they are in all these different areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And actually, since COVID, it's been all remote and oh. did not realize that it could be done as efficiently as long as the systems are already online as far as patient information, health records. Um, I can do my virtual interviews with the leadership staff to gather information. So everything can be done remotely. You don't necessarily have to go into the facilities themselves to conduct these reviews. Okay. So how has your job changed then? Sounds like they're just making you do more um, stuff now. You don't have to travel so much. Well, I think it allows me to focus more on, you know, how to get the information a shorter period of time uh, because the facilities are busy, you know, managing patients, taking care of COVID patients, you know, their, their hands are full. So I'm trying to incorporate into their schedules without creating too much of a disruption yet get the information needed to allow them to identify some areas in which they can enhance them, their performance, their uh, services that they're providing to the residents and to the community to make them do better with the job they're already doing. So to you, have to, them. You, have, you have to be pretty dialed in in all these different facets of the, the compliance game. Is that a challenge mm -hmm. for you to stay up on all those things? Or is, is that something that you've just been able to absorb over time? Uh, over time, I kind of keep myself up to date with regards to looking at the OIG's website to find out what are the areas of focus that the government has for our arena of post-acute care. And then I direct my attention to those areas as well when I'm doing my reviews. Um, for instance, when COVID was hot and heavy, of course, that's going to be an area of focus for the government to see how are we managing our COVID positive patients to reduce infections of the COVID, you know, keep it from spreading. Mm -hmm. So it's an element of, you know, reimbursement, but also clinical care. 
Are we providing on both both sides? Are we taking care of the patients? Are we documenting like we should? And are we billing accordingly? So how did you get into this game? Let's 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 talk about that. Cause and I want to okay. go back. I want to go back to a young Kirsten. Uh-huh. You know, you presumably weren't dreaming of being a compliance uh, person when you were a child. Talk to me about kind of those foundational years. What was it like growing up? And what's the story of how you got into into uh, into the compliance game? Uh, primarily, I start out in nursing. Uh, my mother was an LPN and RN. So I realized you could create yourself, you know, a combined arena of uh, degrees. So I went into nursing because I. Uh, you know, something that she enjoyed. And of course, you want to kind of mimic what you are exposed to. So mm-hmm. I went to um, Ursuline College, um, private nursing home, I'm mean, nursing um, college, and got my registered nurse degree. And then I went and to law school. And I got a healthcare degree in healthcare law. And after that, I was able to combine the two and do um, compliance as far as um, from a different perspective. I did it from quality assurance is where I started. Then being a director of nursing in the post-acute arena. Then I went into risk management for several years, like 14 years I was in risk management. So it kind of is a culmination of a lot of things that built me up into being a compliance officer. Um, I don't have my license to practice law. So I had to think creatively about how I can utilize my law degree without the traditional, non-traditional route. Mm-hmm. And that was when I did my research and found out about corporate compliance. I knew about it, but you can't get into uh, getting certified in compliance until you have a job in compliance. So it's like a catch-22. Totally, yeah. <laughs> so just what happened when I decided to apply for a position as a VP of nursing, the uh, CEO at the time said, I have something else for you. And it was corporate compliance. It's just like the chips fell in place. Um. Whenever I talk to somebody who has this sort of unique background of all these, all these different flavor profiles, as I call them, um, they always have a really unique perspective in their role. I'd love to hear a little bit about how, I mean, so you have the nursing, you have the law, you have now the compliance, you have this sort of uh, administrative, um, you have the risk, you have the quality assurance. Talk to me about how you've used these different tools and how you pull these tools out of your, your toolbox on an ongoing basis that allow you to be maybe a little bit more effective. Um, and yeah, let's start there. Okay. Um, primarily quality assurance is a form of compliance, but from a details perspective, from a clinical aspect, did you cross your T's and dot your I's mm-hmm. when it came to the documentation? That's where it first started for me. And then went into risk management and that allowed me to expand my scope and look at how is the building, the nursing homes actually run from the administrative side to maintenance, to pharmacy, to billing. So I had to know what are the areas of risk in all those various departments in preparation for survey and maintaining patient care and good outcomes. So with regards to compliance, it just kind of pulled it all together for me and added another element of looking at the reimbursement aspect of it. We've been doing all this other thing. It was it was a nice buildup of information and experience that allowed me to feel more effective in compliance. So now I'm looking at the billing things to make sure we've got all this other stuff in order. So now are we billing like we should? Are we keeping up with the regulations? Are we keeping up with the codes and things that are required to make sure we're billing effectively? Like with the COVID, um, the public health health emergency, there are new codes that were introduced. Mm-hmm. Does our billing department know how to utilize those codes? 
So I have to kind of cause me to be quick on catching up on new uh, regulations and guidelines and educating the facilities on how to use those as well. So I'm able to build up on what I've already learned. So let me ask you this. Where in your mind, are there sort of clear lines between the billing side of it and the regu- you know, the policy compliance and the regulatory compliance and whatever, or does it all just kind of, is it just kind of a mosaic that all kind of blends together and you can just algorithmically, for lack of a better term, understand where those pain points are? Right. It, they're interdependent upon one another. And I think a lot of people think that it's very defined and definite and outside of one another, but they are combined one to another. And it helps me to explain how that happens. You know, where why is there a risk in what I'm doing on this piece of paper? I'm putting the codes in based on what the documentation is provided for me. How is that a risk? I'm able to explain that. So I do a lot of education and I let them know we're on the same team. I'm here to make you do better at what you're already doing, to help you to make sure we aren't missing any, you know, critical elements so we don't get ourselves in trouble. If we do, we self-correct, which is something that's allowed to limit any type of liability, but we're human. We make mistakes. Right. So when I think about... um I mean, you kind of touched on something that I think um, a lot of folks in your position um, deal with, which is sort of the natural defensiveness that people may feel from somebody from the outside coming in. And I mean, it technically is sort of being critical of their work. You're, you're, you're at least um, analyzing it, right? You're at least judging it. What right. techniques have you, and these are also compliance people to some degree, right? I mean, these are folks that are, are that are kind of in the, it's almost like you're kind of like internal affairs is what it sounds like. So <laughs> in a good way. Uh, but what techniques have you realized uh, or, you know, have you been able to bring to bear uh, effectively that makes that interaction easier? Because it's really hard to get traction when somebody feels like you're against them, you know? Right. Um, some of the techniques have helped, helped me to let them know I'm a team. I'm on the same team as them. I'm here to self-identify and help us to self-correct. They're the experts in what they do. I'm here to make sure that we're doing it to the highest level possible. They're educating me as well as I'm educating them. So it's a two-way street in that regard. Um, In order to get the buy-in, you know, to get them to make the corrections that need to be made. And always point out what they're doing right Mm -hmm. before you start pointing out what's being done wrong. Because you'll get people to shut you down real quick. You start saying, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. What am I doing right first so I can at least trust you that you know what you're talking about? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to recognize that and do a little bit of uh, humanizing of yourself um, right. kind of allows you to probably remind mm-hmm. that, hey, we're kind of all supposed to be supposed supposed to be ro- rowing in the same direction, you know? Right, right. And then I say, I'm here for you to show me what you do on a day-to-day basis and educate me, and then I can let you know if we're missing a few steps along the way, or if things changed since the last time you looked at, you know, the latest guidelines, because they're ever ever changing in post-acute care. Mm-hmm. As soon as you get the hang of it, there's, okay, it's time to change it. <laughs> when, when you're doing these reviews, or when you're assessing uh, a program or a location, do you tend to see trends of like these are pain points or these are hot spots or these are, you know, these are risk areas that always that I'm always, you know, these are the rocks I'm going to look under first. And if so, what are those things? Right. Uh, 
Usually the trends are pretty consistent throughout once you find one building with those issues due to changeover in staff. Mm. Um, there are times where staff will bring over procedures and policies that they use from another employer that, you know, we have to correct mm-hmm. or let them know this is how we do it in our facility. So it's a, you know, it's a learning curve. I think that creates most of the trends that are identified, but usually they fall in line what's going on actively right then and there um, in long-term care uh, from a governmental standpoint, as far as some of the most common issues, abuse, neglect always stays in the forefront. That one doesn't ever go away. So tell me some more about that. Um, primarily with regards to CMS, there's expectation that we treat our, you know, family members and loved ones in long-term care with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. And because sometimes staff get too busy, they're overwhelmed, they have more, you know, patients than they should or are they able to manage, and they get kind of quick with how they do things and they have co- create shortcuts. And it's to the point where it's neglectful of the patient. You're not able to provide the services they need or you're not taking them into consideration when you're trying to make decisions or help them to get things done. You're moving them too fast. Um, it may be perceived as you're, you know, you're being abrupt or mm-hmm. physically aggressive with them. And because they're older, they may feel that you're being rough with them. They want to report it to, to the state. They can do that on an anonymous basis or they can tell their name. And the state will come in no matter what the issue is and investigate the matters to make sure that we're and there are some legitimate concerns out there as far as how aged people are being treated in nursing homes. So it's never going to leave off the radar as an area of focus from the government standpoint. They have hotlines that you can call into anonymously and report certain concerns to, you know, whether you know the person directly or you just have an inkling something's not right. You know, there's a 1-800 number that OIG has available to mm-hmm. people to call in. But I mean, so you want to get, curtail. yeah, and you want to probably get out ahead of that, of course, and prevent that right, instead of being it, reactionary and so forth. Right. What are some of the exactly. early warning signs that you end up seeing at a particular facility or what are the rumblings, you know, what are the canaries in the coal mine that, <laughs> that you can address before you get the OIG showing up, uh, you know, at the, at the location? Well, making sure that we already have guidelines in place to self-identify and do the staff know what to do to help prevent burnout, to address staffing shortages, mm-hmm. to maintain we have good outcomes with regards to the patients we take care of. Really, we shouldn't be surprised by anything that a surveyor comes in and asks us because we should know it before they do. We've been there all day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we that's should right. have our own investigation of the matter in place. You pull it out as an investigation, show the surveyor. That's the way it should go. We shouldn't, it shouldn't be new information to us that a surveyor is bringing to our attention. We should be telling the surveyor what's going on. How big of a role does the local culture of a particular facility play in the overall ethical environment or the culture or, or, the, uh, or the compliance risks? And how do you, can, and can you feel that when you go in from, from one facility to the next? Uh, you can, you can. It's, uh, I guess I it's probably a little harder because you're virtual now, yeah? Right, right. But, you know, I think when they know that you're one of the team members, you know, the defensive measures come down and they let you know, this is what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis. This is why I'm, mm. you know, not quite dotting my I's and crossing my T's like I should. I don't have the support I need or I don't have the staff I need. 
what can you do to help facilitate that? Mm-hmm. And so the objective is to maintain, you know, good quality care, uh, make sure the, pa- the employees as well as the patients receive the resources they need to, you know, have the optimal situation take place. Um, you can feel it. The tension is there and it, they're sometimes frustrated enough where they just kind of vent mm-hmm. with to you and hopes that you can provide them some relief or some answers to the issues that they're dealing with at that particular time, or let them know you're not alone. There, you know, there are other facilities that are dealing with some of the same issues and this is how we're approaching it. Um, Okay. I want to kind of pivot a little bit into the, the billing piece of the puzzle, because that's Mm -hmm. not something I'm, you know, super well versed in, but I Mm -hmm. feel like I'd love to learn a little bit more about it. So Sure. When you're thinking about, you know, when you're coming in and you're, I mean, these are essentially like billing audits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes, how right. are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about it from a revenue optimization standpoint? Or are you thinking of it from a, I don't want to get in trouble and have like reimbursement risk standpoint, which, right. which side gets the gets latter, the, the latter, the latter, right. the latter part. You, you're trying to prevent any type of reimbursement issues after the fact. So you're looking to make sure that the required documentation is there. If it's not, where are we falling short? Where, you know, where is the education lacking to make sure that we are not making these mistakes on a repetitive basis? It might be a one-off situation yeah. and it's addressed and, you know, and then we can move forward. But if it's and how are you doing trend, that? How are you doing that? How are you doing? It's a one-on-one. If it's a one-off type situation, you're educating the departments in that particular facility or building. And making sure you monitor and audit to make sure they've caught on to the education that was provided and making the corrections. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a trend, you know, we're going at a higher level. We're talking to the executive leaders of the different facilities because I cover at least 30. And we make sure that they provide an overall collective education on how to correct these issues so that we can, you know, prevent any type of uh, issues and mitigate any type of uh, repayment on our part. If we do have to have a repayment, we make that repayment. We notify CMS. We goofed in this particular area. We are self-correcting. This is the money we owe you back because we didn't quite have things on point like we should have. So are you just making a selection of bills and you're just checking them or do you have it's, software right. that's doing it's it or a, what? It's a snapshot uh, list of patients that are skilled, mainly they're skilled residents because they are at a higher level of reimbursement than the average. Um, We also use resources that the government made available to us called the PEPPER reports. And those actually show when your facility triggers at a higher level of making mistakes when it comes to billing and coding. So that's another resource for us. So, I mean, your job, let's just do a little thought experiment here. If you were able to wave a magic wand and solve one big problem in terms that, you know, you are seeing over and over and over again, uh, what would that thing be? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's one thing that, you know, 80% of the issues are attached to these 20% of, you know, problems. What's that big turnover? Turnover, turnover, yep, and staffing. That is one of the biggest contributors due to lack of knowledge on some aspects of it. Coming with already preconceived ideas of how to do things. You know, different companies have different objectives, um, but we try to educate them on our standards and what the expectations are from our facility. 
And I, you know, I feel very good with the company I work for that they maintain high standards. Do you think management across the board understands the true cost cost of turnover? And if they, you think they do? They do. Yes, they do. Why is it so I mean, high then? If it's if everybody gets it, well, I'm not saying at thing. at your organization. I don't, I don't know it's what a it is. Challenging. I mean, healthcare right now is very challenging. You know. When you do have staff, it's just the burnout aspect of things, um, dealing with the level of care needs of our patients are getting younger and sicker mm, than they ever have. Really? Yeah. And long-term care doesn't necessarily mean they're you know, an elderly person that's in the nursing home. It may be somebody in their 40s who just has a lot of comorbidities and ailments that keep them from taking care of themselves. Interesting. So, yeah, you got a lot of younger people than we ever have in long-term care. Some people that don't have any place to live that utilize long-term care as a resource, as a place to stay, even though they medically are stable. So I think turnover is like a blight on our economy. And I think it's something that mm -hmm. the yeah. cost of yeah, which hope. gets under underestimated. I think everybody knows that it's high, but I don't think we really ha can put our put our finger on what the true cost of it is. I'd love to hear a little bit about how, I mean, the last couple of years for healthcare have been absolutely brutal, right? We went from COVID and then things got a little bit better. Things started to loosen up and then we had this great resignation. And from some studies I've read, healthcare was hit, it was hit real hard in COVID for sure. But then also with the great resignation and all of that turnover, um, it was hit of, you know, it was like one of the highest industries that really got blasted by that. Um, where do you think we are in that process? Do you see it? Do you see it starting to get a little bit better? Do you feel like it's just kind of this is the new normal, and it's just like people are just used to kind of turning over this burnout? Is you know they kind of hop the fence to greener pastures, and they expect the burnout to be uh, better, and it's really just kind of more of the same. Like where where is it at? Well, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, they're just kind of jumping from one to the to another, and some may be worse than others. But, you know, healthcare is adjusting as we have to. Uh, we don't have the staff. Then sometimes we have to close units. You know, beds have to be closed out because we don't have the requisite amount of staff to take care of the patients. So they may have to go to our competitor to be taken care of. If we can't, if our house is full, Interesting. We, you know, all our beds are full with what we can take and care and handle in a safe manner. And then there are some nursing homes that are actually closing, you know reimbursement's not, you know, ideal. It's not always going as high as we'd like it to. So that plays into the staffing, you know, game as well. Mm -hmm. But yet the quality and outcomes needs to be the same or better. So we're having to do the same work or more with less resources. So we're making adjustments. Um, and, you know, it's got to come from somewhere really to your in. point. It's got to come from somewhere. And the first place yeah. it comes from is, is from the employees and which again, yeah. kind of kicks off this yeah. virtue. Yeah. There's this, uh, this cycle of, uh, burnout and it gets worse and, you know, right. it's a really, and then, you know, the reimbursement aspect of it, even with that, you know, we're having to pay off higher wages, you know, to attract the talent, but then that's a game too. You know, you just hopping from the one employer to another based on an extra dollar or two, but that's not maybe the ideal situation. That shouldn't be your main motivation. It should be, you know, taking care of others, 
to the highest level able you're able to, with, regardless of the dollar amount, because that could be your mother or your father in that you know hospital bed or that nursing home bed. You just touched on something interesting, and it's the sort of you know age old you know built in sort of inherent conflict in for profit <laughs> uh, healthcare organizations where you have to turn a profit. You know nobody is compelled to be a nurse or be a long term care provider. Um, and there's all these sort of competing factors, you know, this reimbursement thing is a, is a real killer. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, my heart goes out to healthcare, um, workers, healthcare facilities, because they are really the ones in the middle of this whole thing. They have to kind of, um, they have to make all these different ends meet the care end, the employee end, the reimbursement end, the profit end, if they're going to keep those, keep those places open to your point. And, um, it's hard to maintain quality above all else, given all these massive, massive headwinds. How do you, you know, how have you seen different organizations pri prioritize those things either, you know, explicitly or implicitly and where do they fall short usually? Um, primarily, I think we utilize our other resources outside of uh, nursing homes. We have home care and hospice facilities mm -hmm. also that help take off some of the pressure um, also, it's being directed that people are taken care of in their homes. Telehealth has been very instrumental and helpful in that. Um, getting family members involved more than ever, educating them on how to take care of their loved ones. So that, so I think the direction is to eventually, you know, move away from the institution and get into the home. If you're able to have someone take care of you in a safe manner. That's ideally the person, the place where you should be. Yeah, it's a tough challenge. There's no silver bullet for sure. Um, mm -hmm. If you could think back, like you've been in this game for for a while, you've seen a lot of these different trends and a lot of these different changes. How, and this is going to be a hard question, so buckle up. How is where we're at today different from where you thought we would be 10 years ago? You know, 10 years ago, you thought things are going to be at this kind of a place. And I'm sure it's very different than where, where, where you thought in what ways are it, in what ways are things different and like, what's kind of most surprising to you? Well, I think I'm glad to see that the um, computer systems have caught up to, we've caught up to the system with regards to being able to do things remotely. Okay. Um, I think COVID has really helped to bring some mm -hmm. of healthcare into the 21st century <laughs> right. with regards to, you know, how to take care of people remotely, um, regardless of their needs. But yet some of this age old things still harbor as far as staffing, having enough nurses and aides to take care of our patients, whether it's a hospital, nursing home or home health. Um, and I think it's just a matter of us looking out for one another, being your, you know, brother's keeper and looking out for each other. It's really comes back to something as basic as that. Yeah, that that golden rule, you know, everything you need mm -hmm. to know about healthcare you learned in kindergarten or something, right? Like Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> be a good right, person, right. take care yeah. of each other. Yeah. Right, know. right. Exactly. Um so let's get into our time machine again, and now we're going to go back even further and we're going to go find a young Kirsten. I love this question because I learned so much from it, but what piece of advice do you wish you had when you were first going into law school or first coming out of high school, something that you wish, man, if I knew that then, I would be in a totally different spot or I would have been able to really multiply my impact? Um, 
I think <clears throat> trying to go towards the traditional route of when you come out of law school, this is what you should do. You know, go work for a law firm, <laughs> get as many clients as you can, yep. you know, and, and do well. Yeah. Hop on the rat, uh, the rat race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Get on the treadmill. Right, and right, right. Never stop. <laughs> but because I didn't pass the bar exam, it diverted me into a direction that was more suitable for me. It worked out for the best. It would help me to use my healthcare background in a way in which I wasn't even aware of. Interesting. So I, you know, I like to tell as many people as I can in healthcare, this is a open field. Compliance is very open in healthcare and in demand. So if it's something that you, you know, you're interested in, look into it and see if this something that you could be a benefit to the field as well as, you know, it helped you. But, um, I think I think things happen the way they should have, and I'm happy for it. Yeah, I uh, I'm sure that that lesson was probably a hard one to learn, and it probably took a while, and it took a lot of like looking back in the rear view and really, um, I don't know, to really kind of recognize. So I'll share a little bit uh, myself. My friend was telling uh, me this story about how he worked so hard uh, for all these years to be a success. You know, he worked really hard to be a success. And it was only recently that he realized that like, well, I've already made it. And I probably actually made it a couple, you know, I made it five or seven years ago, actually. And all this time I've been like chasing this, this outcome that's been like hollow and I haven't, and I've had it and I haven't even like seen that I've had it, you know, and like how much uh, pain and how much um, anxiety and like, um, I don't know, you know, like self-esteem, like was evaporated away due to like not recognizing that, wow, I'm on the right path. I'm already doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. It's a really powerful lesson to learn. And it's really something that, um, I don't know, I've struggled with, with myself. Like if I could just do this, then, then I'll be a success. If I could just do this, then, you know, and it's like, you can't live your life thinking you can't live your life defined by what you think other people think of you. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to myself mm -hmm. right here. Okay. Exactly. You know, but that's exactly. a hard thing to learn because we kind of keep score mm -hmm. and kind of, or I have sort of tended to like keep score and judge myself by like the scoreboard that's up on the wall that like is really kind of a bunch of vanity and a bunch of nothing, you know? Yeah. I just read where you shouldn't base your success on others, but based on how you can improve yourself. Mm. Where do you want to be, you know, better in your life? The best you. How can you become the best you? Why do you think that's so hard for us? I think we just caught up in, you know, it's almost like a advertising. This is what you should do, you know, to be successful. I think we just kind of fall into this uh, loop of looking at television or hearing it on the broadcast. This is what somebody successful looks like or sounds like or is driving or smoking. And it's like, oh, if I smoke that, then I'll look successful. Mm -hmm. If I drink this, I'll look successful where you're preoccupied with the wrong things instead of working on yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there's an interesting example of that uh, in Elon Musk. So, I mean, um, it's no secret that I'm not like the biggest Elon Musk guy. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the surface, you look at this guy and he's like literally the richest man in the world. Wow, he's buying, you know, social media and has a rocket company and, car company and all this stuff. And then you start to like, see what this guy's life looks like. And it's kind of crazy. I mean, he's got 20 kids, he doesn't talk to them. Yeah, I mean, it's wild, right? And it's easy for us to your point to just see on the two dimensional screen on Instagram, or an advertisement, 
what this picture of success is without seeing like, well, what's that third dimension look like? What do the relationships look like? What are the multiple facets of that person's life actually look like? Um, and I don't know, it's hard though. It's hard to not get caught up in that, you know, what you called the like advertising thing because all those advertisements are like built to like attack those insecurities that are in all of us. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like that hidden um, subliminal message. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. It's like it keeps being thrown at you in different pictures and formats, but it's like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do, but you're, you know, take uh, heed of what it is that makes you happy. Because I was chasing, you know, I got to pass the bar. I got to pass the bar. Right. It's like, you know, okay, what happens if you don't? What, what are you going to do? Just give up on life because you, yeah, right. you have it? Yeah, right. It's like, no, no. You it, have to take the detour and, and find out what's on the other street and keep it moving. Yeah. And, um, you know, had you passed it, you might've been in a path that's super unfulfilling. You're clearly on a path where you're making a real difference. You're making a difference in patients' lives. Who knows to, you know, to the extent that you've saved people's lives because you've kept a location compliant that allowed for someone to get the care they needed and, you know, have that sort of quality of life at the end of their life or whatever it might be, you know? And when you couple that with this other thing, which I find so bizarre and it, I just keep getting bit by the same snake over and over again, is just how anticlimactic everything in life is. You know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, I remember reading about this boxer who um, his whole life, you know, he had pictures of boxers on his, uh, champion boxers on his wall. He'd be waking up at five and running and, um, you know, striving his whole life, got the gold medal, striving his whole life to become, you know, to get the belt and like how depressed he got after he got the belt because it's like, well, now what? Because everything's so so anticlimactic. You wake up that next day, you know, or you hear millionaires talk about this. A millionaire says, oh, you know, all oh, I'm striving, striving, striving. You know, my whole family fell apart. I just wanted to hit this number. And then they hit the number and they feel just like they felt the day before and five years before and 20 years before. Uh, right. None of it changes. None of these things actually end up filling you up or end up like changing anything. Um, and yet <laughs> I keep, you know, I stay on this uh, this treadmill, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Eventually, you become uh, you know, more mature and older and wiser. It literally hits you. It's like, what am I doing? <clears throat> yeah, well, hopefully. Hopefully, one day I'll step off of this treadmill. You know what I mean? I know. <laughs> I know. I remember when I could, thought I could save the world, you know, in my 20s. And it's like you get older and live life. And you're like, okay, I got to make some reevaluate my goals. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. The millennials, I think, have it, have it figured out. You know, just staying on the grind, staying on the treadmill is not the goal in life. Right. Self-fulfillment and satisfaction. Yeah. It just looks different than what we're used to. You know, I'm not, some of it I'm not familiar with. I just have to observe. <laughs> yeah. What do you think that is? What do you think is at the root of that sort of more well-roundedness or a goal of a I more we'd sort be of- would be happier. I thought people would be more happy, you know, and more satisfied, but you hear still there's a lot of anxiety, depression going on. I think we still let social media put, put us on that treadmill even faster than we were before social media came about. And we're hitting those low points faster because of so much information coming at us. We don't know how to recover and process it. And we just right. become overwhelmed in it. And it's like you have to detach and just kind of center yourselves and figure out what what will make me happy outside of looking at anybody else's life and how well they're doing. What is what can I do for myself to make me feel good? Imagine if happiness is found in, in a Nokia phone. All you have to do 
is get one of those <laughs> old Nokia's off of uh, off of eBay, then you're not going to be on Instagram. You're not going to be bombarded with the tweets and the notifications. You're texting old right. school, which makes you just right. make phone calls. You know what I'm saying? Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Imagine if that's yeah. the whole key, the key to it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd probably nuts. be a little happy. You probably would be a little happy. Yeah, yeah. What they call ignorance is bliss. Yeah, there's something to that, right? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I have a daughter who's um, she's like four, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's easy at this time, at least for me, to be like caught up in all the, you know, it's crazy. Everything there's always something going on, and you know, not appreciate this like special time we have, and like everything's magic to her everything she's excited about everything and it's like what a what a way to be you know what a i know you know, I know. not uh yeah. not jaded by the world yet it's such like a special age because right. she's like she's turning into her own person but i don't know it's just she's so full of joy you know it's like how do we right. keep that how do we bottle that and uh and give me some of that you know what i'm saying <laughs> Four, 14 month old great grandchild that has really recently coming to our life and wow it's just exciting to see how she just lights up when she sees you and and it's like i light up when i think what can i do to you know keep her safe and yeah keep her comfortable it's like you don't even want to see her teething like oh my god she's teething what can i do to right. help lighten her her pain right <laughs> right that's uh, you know maybe yeah. that's that's why we have them to to remind us so we don't get so caught yeah. up in all the the mess of yeah, it all you know true. what i'm saying that's true that's true yeah so let's uh, look in our crystal ball. You got your crystal ball handy? Yeah, yeah. Let's I look in your it. crystal ball, and it's 10 years from now. What do you? Th- where do you think we're at? How mm-hmm. has the game changed? How has your job changed? How have the risks that we're you know, surfing through uh, changed? Um, I think 10 years from now, I would hope that people will be able to self-identify some of these issues without someone auditing them per se, or bringing it to their attention. That would be an ideal situation 10 years from now to the point, I don't need a, I don't have a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that would be an ideal situation where people say, oh, okay, okay, these are things I should do. And these are things I can't do. And without someone always standing over them, saying, pointing out to them. Right. So that That's the way I would, you know, if it were to be an ideal world, utopia, right? Yeah. It could, it could be a, um, <laughs> Yeah, there'd be no compliance officers, right? Yeah, but to 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 do that, there'd have to be no turnover, which means that everybody would have to have like work, you know, told where to work. You okay? You can only work here, and you can never leave. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah, that's right. That'd be perfect too. (laughs) Exactly. You'll be so satisfied, you'll never want to go anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, this was a fun conversation. Thanks so much for joining uh, us today on the Ethics Experts. Um, Where can people find you, Kirsten? I am on LinkedIn. No, I need your address. I'm kidding. Oh, you want? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me on LinkedIn under my name. I'm actually on Facebook, but it's under my personal name, Kirsten Taylor Billups. And um, I think that'll be. That's it. That'll be get you to me. Yeah, that'll be it. Very good. Common Spirit Health. You can always look at their directory and find me. Cool. Very good. Well, thank you so much for um, spending some of your day with us. This was a lot of fun. Until next time.